This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence is one of the most notorious novels ever written and was banned under obscenity laws for decades on both sides of the Atlantic. In her latest novel, Tenderness, Alison MacLeod weaves together fact and fiction to reimagine the events that inspired Lawrence to write Chatterley and to re-examine the fault lines in 20th century Western culture that its publication and banning exposed. On the balcony, among the geraniums, he squinted. The coastline, as far as the Cap d'Antibes, shook and shimmered. It was impossible to say where sea turned to sky. The smudge of an ocean liner materialised at what might have been the horizon, while light streamed the runoff from the warp and weft of the world. Nothing the day touched remained solid. Nothing held. Nothing except the geraniums and their defiant fists of red. The previous day, upright in his underwear in the medical bay, the exile had learned that he was even still five feet nine inches tall, or that he was when the state of his lungs allowed him to straighten. He would have been cheered by this fact had he not weighed in at 45 kilos on the French scales and 100 pounds on the imperial, or not quite seven stone. He had insisted on both scales but the two nations were agreed. It meant at least that he could go, almost literally, where the wind blew him. The almond trees of the town were a pink and white froth of blossom. The breeze, slight as it was, had a reviving salt tang. He needed only his hat and shoes. Are we ready? he called into the room. Where was the release for the break on the blasted bath chair? Frida stepped onto the balcony, clicked her cigarette case open, and leaned with Rubenesque languor against the rail. She would not be rushed. Antonia Beamish narrating Tenderness, written by my guest today, Alison MacLeod. Alison, welcome. Red, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Tenderness opens at a pivotal point in the history of Lady Chatterley's lover. Lawrence is in exile and he's dying. And he is fighting censorship of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which will turn out to be his last book. Yes, yes, exactly. So it, or it will be his last novel, his last labour of love. He called the form of the novel the one bright book of life. So Lady Chatterley was his last one bright book of life. And, and he really poured the last of himself into... Lady Chatterley's Lover. So he was writing it between 1926 and 1928 in Tuscany, partly for the weather because his chest was so bad, uh, partly because, as you've just said, he was he was quite a natural exile in that he was always roaming and always restless. But things got 
quite bad within the last two years of his life. Manuscripts were being confiscated. There was a great discussion in Parliament talking about the controversy of confiscating manuscripts, but then that being challenged and saying, no, we have to protect the world against such obscenities. And then the authorities began to close in because Lawrence, having published it privately to avoid the censor, was then uh, at, at risk of being arrested for having distributed obscenity through the Royal Mail, through customs. Yes, the authorities are so desperate to see it banned that they even get Scotland Yard to launch a criminal investigation that basically means Lawrence cannot go back to the UK. Exactly. He was warned by his agent that if he tried to return to to England, he faced arrest. And we join him on his sickbed in the dying days of 1929 with his wife Frida in the south of France and he's slipping in and out of consciousness and remembering the days that inspired Lady Chatterley and through your research you have uncovered the real life model for Constance Chatterley. Yes, yes, I was fascinated to discover Rosalind Thornycroft Bain. In 1920, Lawrence had the one extramarital affair of his life. I realised in tracking through their letters, she was just on the brink of divorce. She had three small children. She only wanted the divorce because her husband couldn't really rein in his promiscuity and she was suffering under it. And yet um, a woman on her own could not petition for divorce. So it was down to her husband to grant a divorce. And, and that all proved very complicated. But she gives Constance Chatterley her appearance, her colouring, her hair, her quality also of having a kind of stillness about her, is how he describes both Constance Chatterley and Rosalind Thorningcroft Baines, a great, a sort of powerful presence of stillness with a spirit of daring that he admired. So here is this woman who had moved with her three children to Italy and had done this very bold thing because the marriage had become so unhappy and... and it, all the cards were in his hands, but she forced that hand, got the divorce. And then she and Lawrence came together in Florence for about two or three weeks. He actually rented a home down the hill from her own home. And while he was there, he wrote a sequence of poems that are absolutely inspired by their love affair. They're known as his San Gervasio sequence. So those poems are really about Rosalind. But later, he would return to his marriage. However, she and her influence were with him still six years later when he began Lady Chatterley. And lots of little bits of her biography are given to Constance Chatterley. So her character, many elements of her biography, her father being a royal academician, her sister being worried about her future. So that's, that's the sort of background to it. And discovering that... I mean, the, the common story is that Lady Chatterley is based on Frida Lawrence. And and I think that was a very, well, it's it's not untrue in that Frida Lawrence was an aristocrat. Um, Lawrence was a working class man like Mellors. And they more or less ran away together. But Rosalind Thornycroft was also a, a well-bred woman, one could say. And it's her physical characteristics, 
her almost spiritual characteristics and all sorts of tendrils of her biography that move through Constance Chatterley. And in a wonderful echo from history, you also uncovered that Rosalind Thornicroft's mother was the inspiration for Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Yes, isn't that wonderful? I, I, I love that connection when I discovered it. And she speaks of it in her own biography. And she also notes that, which I think is just delicious, that her uh, Rosalind's mother taught Thomas Hardy how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> I mean, these are the things you couldn't and wouldn't make up, just the gems of life that one comes across in research and makes it such a joy. Clearly, all novelists draw from their personal experience when they're creating their characters and their plots. But you also uncover a deep betrayal by D.H. Lawrence when he was staying in Sussex during the First World War as he was finishing The Rainbow. And that forms another strand of tenderness. Yes, I, I, again, that was such a, a surprise for me to uncover. I've lived in Sussex since 1989, so a very long time, and it's absolutely my adopted and beloved home. And yet, I had never heard that Lawrence had spent about seven months in Sussex with the Menel family. So I was just, as you can imagine, really excited when... Uh, a very kind member of that family said, well, come over and have a look. And so it took me through the cottage and across the property. And as I walked and we looked together, I could absolutely see the terrain for England by England, his, his long short story, which um, was first published in 1915. But as you say, what began to emerge was this level of betrayal that it's no secret, the family still speaks of it today. And I would say that the pain of that uh, being so so misrepresented on the page raises a great ethical question about fiction because on the one hand England my England in that story Lawrence uses for example a family tragedy that was still very raw in 1915 where a mental child was very badly injured and almost died and Perhaps even worse, there was a marriage of a, a mental daughter to a man called Percival Lucas. And the nature of their marriage, from all accounts and from everything I've managed to uncover, was really badly misrepresented. And it was made into this fairly toxic marriage. And the worst aspect from their point of view was the physical descriptions of the property, of the family was so accurate, it's almost like a guided tour, that everyone in literary London absolutely would have known who, who the family was. The, you could say the matriarch of the household was a well-known poet called Alice Mennell, well-known in the Edwardian period, um, and her husband was a well-known publisher. So they were at the heart of literary London, and this was their Sussex retreat, and it seemed as if here was someone who'd been amongst the Manals for six or seven months and had close knowledge of them. And so this must be the truth. They really took him to their bosom. And he joined in family games. He and Frida joined in meals. They were given a cottage when they had 
you know, not two pence to rub together. They, the family couldn't have been more warm and welcoming. And as he was finishing the rainbow, as you've just mentioned, Viola Menel, again, a, a daughter of the house and a novelist herself, she um, volunteered to act as typist on that manuscript. So they were remarkably generous and supporters of the arts. And then after he left, he left late summer. In October, that story just uh, went through to the quick of them. It really gave them a shock. It was public humiliation. And you recreate that stay in Sussex and show that because the Menels were so well connected, there was a, a stream of literary figures coming down to visit. And Lawrence comes across as a very rancorous character. He falls out with friends and acquaintances, including E.M. Forster. And part of it, it seems to be because he despises charity and he, he recognises that he's being given charity and just can't deal with it. Yes, exactly. He was hugely proud, fiercely independent, and yet he was always suffering from near bankruptcy or near poverty. Uh, they had returned to England in 1914. He and Frida, he'd run off with Frida. Frida had run off with him. They uh, went into Europe, saw her family, travelled into Italy, decided to stay in Italy, but she was not allowed to see her children. They returned to London in the summer of 1914 to get married. As it happened, war was declared while they were here that summer. And they found themselves trapped in England. Uh, but England was substantially more expensive than Italy and they couldn't afford to live. So Viola Menel said very sweetly, my father's given me a cottage on this sort of family property. You have my cottage. I'll move in to the farmhouse with my parents and, and you know, we'll provide you with a maid so you'll just be able to get on and finish the rainbow and I'll help, I'll type it up. And so on. So that was the arrangement. But as you say, he couldn't really forgive charity. He was rancorous at this time, perhaps more than at any other stage of his life, because of the declaration of war. He wasn't a pacifist, but he objected within his soul to what he saw almost before, well, before most people did, was the industrial scale slaughter of the First World War by men, he said, being made into machine parts. And he thought there's an example of obscenity. And it, he raged at it. He went into a black, black despair. He couldn't write. And Viola Menel sort of saved them by saying, well, here, this is very pleasant little cottage, have it. For me, Lady Chatterley's Lover very much begins with Lawrence's despair at the First World War, because as we open, uh, the first line of Lady Chatterley's is, ours is essentially a tragic age, and so we refuse to take it seriously. The cataclysm has happened. And I, reading that when I first read the book in my teens, I had no idea really what he was referring to in that. But now I realise that Lady Chatterley is this great story of fertility and abundance, but it's it's a kind of fertility that's going to save his England mm. from the absolute agony and the brokenness of the First World War. He thought his society was so badly broken, traumatised, deeply maimed and wounded by that industrial-scale slaughter. 
and it begins with England, My England in 1918, and in a sense, the final bookend of that experience really comes into itself in Lady Chatterley's Lover about 10 years later. The First World War was really the defining event for Lawrence, and Lawrence felt like an impotent man. And themes of impotence and futility, male futility, run through Lawrence's work until we end up with the character of Sir Clifford in the wheelchair as a war hero coming back. And the original title of Lady Chatterley's Lover was Tenderness. And this was a word that had great resonance for Lawrence. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, of course it's about as it is for all of us. It's about human connection. It's about human touch. It's about compassion, vulnerability. And yet for Lawrence, it's also something more. For him, true tenderness looks at human shame. It arises through and acknowledges, in a sense, human impulses that are dark. It Some of those, that darkness and that shame, for Lawrence being the result of human life being reduced to hypocrisies, hypocrisies that then create shame and humiliation and also dark impulses. And Lawrence says, no, we just have to be honest about what it is to be human. This is what it is. Human bodies are very much part of it. And human bodies are not always neat and uh, easily described. So for him, tenderness had all that complexity to it. And when one really sort of took stock of human foibles, fallibility, vulnerabilities, impulses, and came through to the other side, then that was a mature human relationship on which he felt society could be built anew and could be healthy and fertile and revolutionary and evolutionary, that it would truly evolve and not get stuck into the mud of false feeling, false emotion, false thought. So that was Lawrence's philosophy, really. And tenderness is, is perhaps his word of all words that connects us to his thinking in that way. Lawrence was perfectly aware that he was lobbing a grenade into the comfortable drawing room of the establishment. Yeah, I find it amazing that a single novel could have had these reverberations that have moved throughout the 20th century and even pointed ahead in many ways, I think, to the 21st. Um, so yes, Lawrence actually said to Bertrand Russell once, uh, something to the effect of, I'm not getting this exactly right, but we must retire out of the herd in order to throw bombs into it. And you, we, we must bear in mind that Lawrence was born 1885. We're still in Victorian society with all of those conventions we associate with the Victorians. And he felt so much of that was falsehood and hypocrisy. So he often described Lady Chatterley as a bomb. And he spoke of that short story I mentioned, England, my England, as well, as, as he's laying a mine. Mm. So this notion of Lawrence as revolutionary is absolutely key to who he is and who he was as a writer. And, and as you say, Red, then, you know, Lawrence dies at the age of 44, 1930, March 1930. And by early 1960, 
even a little bit earlier, the year before in the States, publishers' efforts to republish what had only been privately published, and that was the original Lawrence text, the full text, uncut, of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Uh, and that, even in 1959-1960, still proved absolutely subversive and risky in a way that surprised me. I, I knew that the, the trial, particularly at the Old Bailey in London, in October, November 1960, had been this landmark event of literary history. However, I, I was really brought up short in my research when I came across you know, a, a wealth, again, these gems I've spoken of that, that turn up and dazzle you. When I discovered that the FBI had taken a very particular interest in the publication of Lady Chatterley's Lover in the States and was trying to block it or curb it, at the very least, felt it was an example of so-called un-American kinds of works that would corrode American youth and American society. And J. Edgar Hoover, the infamous director of the FBI, was following the fate of that book closely. The FBI in the States even went so far as to assist the prosecution in London in whatever ways they could to try to have the book stopped here and to have Penguin books stopped. So there were, um, without going into too much detail, which unfolds in tenderness, there were surprising events. I would call them almost sort of dirty tricks. There were elements of harassment going on. Um, the publisher in the States, there was a huge FBI file on him. That was really so much more than I think most of us assume happened in 1960. And into this web of intrigue with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, you also draw Jackie Kennedy, who has parallels in her life with Constance Chatterley. I knew about the FBI uh, hounding of this book, and and I was at the same time I was uncovering her, uh, the ways in which the FBI was also monitoring covertly. A, a huge range of people, 400,000 private American citizens. But amongst those uh, so-called subversives on the subversives index, including, um, out of interest to your, to your listeners, perhaps Helen Keller, which absolutely amazed me to see. So particularly people they thought were too liberal, but with that huge watch list for the FBI, were political figures, elected congressmen and senators, whose Families were being followed, watched, monitored, and Kennedy was one of them. J. Edgar Hoover had all sorts of material on John F. Kennedy. So when I began to think about, well, one, the fact that a novel was in the middle of a, the Cold War was being tracked and hounded by the FBI, that just seemed to me extraordinary. At the same time, I thought to myself, right, I, I, I needed a bridge character for my novel to go from Lawrence's creation of Lady Chatterley, which is so far removed, it would seem, from J. Edgar Hoover following the fate of this book and tracking it and trying to block it or stop it. That Those seem poles apart. And I thought to myself, right, who else in 1960 might be interested in Lady Chatterley? Who else? Initially, I went, I just followed a hunch. And I thought, Jackie Kennedy, in her earliest years, in her 20s, had been a journalist and she had worked for the 
Washington Herald Tribune. And she also covered the coronation uh, of, of Queen Elizabeth II. She came to London for that and reported on it. She also was an absolutely dedicated reader. She loved literature. She liked to paint. She loved short stories. She knew Lawrence's short stories. Uh, and I later discovered that uh, in 1962, she actually buttonholed a critic who loved Lawrence's work. And they talked at great length and with real enthusiasm about Lawrence's novels. And I, so when I discovered that, I thought, fantastic. Even though I, don't, I have no knowledge of this, but I cannot um, not believe that Jackie Kennedy wasn't following the massive press coverage of the run-up to the trial in 1960 in London and the fate of Lady Chatterley, given that she was such a reader of Lawrence. Also, at that stage, 1959, 1960, before Kennedy took the White House, their marriage was actually at a really difficult point. There had been two very sad and difficult pregnancies, two lost babies. He had had spinal surgery. And like Clifford Chatterley, he was a war veteran with a bad injury. I mean, at one point they were saying, you'll need, you'll need to be on crutches or a wheelchair. Uh, and they pointed out the example of uh, FDR, Franklin Delano mm. Roosevelt, having been a president in a wheelchair because he was incapacitated quite often by, by the state of his back and his spine. Plus, he developed Addison's disease and the whole state of Kennedy's health had to constantly be, be covered up. So she was living with you know, very close knowledge of this, this frailty, um, also dealing with the, his string of affairs and flirtations and flings and so on and feeling very humiliated by them. They were on the brink of separation. And apparently, according to biographers, they had agreed that they would separate unless he did win the Democratic nomination, in which case she agreed, for the sake of the presidency, that she would stay with him. Uh, that is, of course, what happened. He won that, that nomination. They stayed together, and the rest is history. But it wasn't a really difficult time, and she was terribly lonely in many ways, and, and living under this sense of estrangement within a marriage. So I could begin to imagine how she would have identified, at least to a degree, with Lady Chatterley's plight, because I think she would have felt that same kind of loneliness, that same kind of ache inside for human connection and human tenderness, which is, of course, a Constance Chatterley's story, that she's reaching out for something that isn't just about sex, it's partly about sex, but it's sex with a, a true emotional fulfilment. And without giving any spoilers, there's a wonderful would-be Oliver Mellor's figure in the shape of an FBI agent. Yes, yes, there is. So he's called, he's called Mel Harding. And I suppose there's a little echo of the Mel and the Mellers in his name. And he's, a, he's an, an FBI operative who is sort of falling down the pecking order of the FBI. He's not doing particularly well in terms of promotions. As you can imagine, an FBI agent, they were moved about the country. There was a lot of loneliness in, in many instances, uh, being isolated. And Mel Harding is, is one such figure. But he is transformed little by little by little from work that he's not proud of, of a, a sort of following of Jackie Kennedy. Uh, but through her storyline at the moment, where she's becoming more involved with secret support 
for Lady Chatterley in the book. He comes to discover the book and little by little is transformed by it. And that transformation leads to something. It's not an affair. I deliberately didn't want to do anything as, as maybe predictable or cliched as that. But there is a kind of transformation that I think is true to the kinds of transformation that we have in Lady Chatterley, where people become more fully themselves, more fully alive. And it's a complicated story for Mel Harding. But through Mellors and through Mellors, Mellors has, in Lady Chatterley lives deep in a wood when Constance Chatterley finds him. He's quite disenchanted with society, with the world. He really just wants to keep himself to himself. He's not happy. And in Oliver Mellor's loneliness on the pages of Lady Chatterley, Mel Harding is able to recognise his own loneliness and um, things evolve from that point on. Now, as you've mentioned, within the same week in 1960... John F. Kennedy won the presidential election and Lady Chatterley's lover won the right to be published in the UK for the first time. And after the break, you'll be giving us a gallery seat in that trial in London's Old Bailey. Fantastic. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-971-1999. The obscenity trial of Lady Chatterley's lover, which took place in 1960 in London's Old Bailey, was a sensation. And you give us a gallery seat so that we can see the procession of the great and the good who came through those famous halls to speak either in defence of or to prosecute the novel. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it, I suppose my novel, Tenderness, it builds. This is a sort of climactic, not quite the end point, but it's what everything builds to. And as you say, it is a sort of parade of witnesses of the great and the good, all manner of luminaries, cultural luminaries, writers, academics, critics, as well as school teachers and a young female student, for example. So uh, we, we get a, a great array of personalities passing through. Yes, even though he's a long dead author and the book has been around in an abridged form, in a sanitised form, I suppose, for 30 years, it does very much feel as if both Lawrence and Lady Chatterley are on trial. And you have some wonderful characters who appear in court, such as Dame Rebecca West, the novelist, literary critic and sometime FBI spy. Yes, Rebecca West was a formidable cultural force at this time in 1960. She was known on both sides of the Atlantic. She was a major novelist, a leading figure, a major social commentator and a major political commentator. She was a controversial figure. She had been a socialist, radical figure in her youth. Now we're sort of in late middle age for Rebecca West. She has become increasingly conservative mostly because she was dismayed at the intellectual left embracing communism in the 50s and thinking that this was the way forward socially. And in that time, uh, yes, as you've 
as you said, Rebecca West was, I mean, not officially a spy, but she was uh, informing. She was a, a liaison point for the FBI and was sending information through to them about novels that were crossing her desk. She was very well connected through the security services. And quite directly, she was having meetings in London with um, the FBI representative and sometimes was in touch with J. Edgar Hoover himself. So that surprised me greatly to discover that. And then there was a further surprise in the course of my research when I discovered letters between Rebecca West and the lawyer who is orchestrating the Lady Chatterley trial for the defence. And he went off in search of all sorts of leading figures to stand up for Lady Chatterley and stand up for Penguin Books. And naturally, he went to Rebecca West, a perfectly reasonable thing to do, given that Rebecca West had actually written um, a tribute to D.H. Lawrence shortly after he died. She'd known him a little bit. She'd met him in 1920, one time only, but she considered him a fellow writer and a friend. And when he was really um, dismissed or even damned in his obituaries, she thought this was just just unbelievable and she wrote a slim volume of tribute to D.H. Lawrence trying to lift out his his genius she didn't believe that Lady Chatterley as a novel served him well uh, you know there were many who didn't but she absolutely in that memoir stood up for him and yet 30 years later the lawyer writes to her saying will you take the stand will you be a witness for the defense at the old bailey and she doesn't exactly say no, but she more or less tries to put him off the case. So there is no doubt that because of that history of her trying to put them off the case, yes, they wanted her. She was their star witness. They absolutely wanted her. She, even, she was more recognized by the jury than E.M. Forster, who also was uh, an important witness. But the jury didn't recognize when they called E.M. Forster, nobody... The, the jury really sat up for Rebecca West. Um, so um, she was one of the, the figures, E.M. Forster, who had been very, really quite cruelly treated by Lawrence in Sussex when uh, they just got to know each other. Forster agreed to pop down to Sussex so that two writers could get to know each other better. And Lawrence was absolutely cruel challenging Forster about his sexuality, about why he hadn't so-called taken a woman yet. It, it was blistering. And Forster was so upset by the encounter that he left the house at first light around just after four in the morning um, and walked, I think, about four or five miles across flooded fields to get to the station to get back to London because he just had to get away after such an evening of, of attack from Lawrence. And yet, the hugely moving thing is, E.M. Forster, nevertheless, as an elderly man now, I think he's in his 80s, appears in court quite frail and absolutely stands up for D.H. Lawrence and for his genius and for Lady Chatterley's lover. Now, the audiobook version is predominantly narrated by Antonia Beamish, with the odd dreamlike interjection by a male narrator voicing D.H. Lawrence's words. 
but for the trial you employ a small cast of narrators to bring to life the drama of the opposing barristers battling it out and their stream of expert witnesses. Was that something that you decided on or was that something that your publisher suggested? Well, you'll know, I think, read in the novel, uh, it is play script style. So the, the mm. sort of paragraphs of narration actually t- change format and become, for much of the trial sequence, almost play script-like. So I didn't know I would, I would be granted the luxury of such a thing, of having uh, an entire cast for the trial scene. I, I didn't assume that was even possible. I knew that and. Tony Beamish was the sort of principal actor on it. And uh, and then when I was informed that, yes, we're going ahead, uh, that, I think that was a decision taken between my publisher and the uh, Audible's director. And I was over the moon that, that that's exactly how, how it should come to life. I mean, the Old Bailey, as I, I try to evoke in the narration of those scenes, is the site for a spectacle. It is stagecraft. It is theatre and it's ritual all at the same time. So that element of a play seemed to me to be really important because this was an international show trial. So the element of play, spectacle, ritual, and the raising of the stakes that comes with all that, a very public display. Uh, And anyone who loved books and loved the sense of society on an edge. Every reader who had a passing interest in Lady Chatterley and scandal was on the edge of their seats. So I very much wanted that sense of, of uh, stagecraft and a, a, a live play, something live and unfolding with the barristers on their feet, in their wigs, in their silk robes. The judge who, it would seem as if I've invented it, and yet the judge was intervening all the time. All the time. I mean, I've I've taken the original transcript is something like six hundred to eight hundred pages. It's huge, and so I've distilled it down to give a sense of the the day by day. And the judge absolutely astonished people by his biased interventions, where he almost, like the prosecution, was uh, putting Lady Chatterley on trial, commenting on her as a promiscuous woman, and so on. And those voices, those pompous voices at times are are brilliantly caught by your small cast of narrators. Now, many listeners may well know you better as the author of wonderful collections of short stories. Your latest, All the Beloved Ghosts, I know was shortlisted for the Governor General's Prize in 2017 in Canada. And you have very close links to Canada, don't you? I do indeed, yes. I was born in Montreal and my three sisters, my brother, my mother, my father's no longer with us, are all in Canada. In in non-pandemic times, I'm there twice a year. We're a very close bunch and we tend to all take a summer house. Uh, your Canadian listeners will absolutely know the beauty of Prince Edward Island. And we take a summer house there as a family and one of my siblings' houses at Christmas time. So I you know, grew up in Canada, a Canadian family. I've lived in England now for about 34 years, I think it is. Um, but I've been across that ocean, yes, so many times. So my connections are very close and it was an honour. It really touched me. I felt so happy to 
have that recognition from the Governor General's Award in my own country and to go back and to be in Toronto for the the main event for that award. And I was back, I'm delighted to say, after nearly two years away because of COVID and all the travel restrictions. But I finally got back last month for my mother's 93rd birthday. And that was just an absolute joy. And so good for my soul to be back in Nova Scotia, which is, which is where my mum is. And it was, a, it was an, an unexpected joy to see Tenderness, uh, the Canadian edition, in bookshops, large and small, and out-of-the-way places and in, in the city where I, I mostly grew up. Something I, I must share with your Canadian listeners is I loved discovering or remembering, because I had forgotten, as I think most people have forgotten, that there's an important element that as... A, a Canadian, I found quite inspiring, really, that at the end of Lady Chatterley's Lover, when Constance and Oliver have finally managed to come together and to be on the brink of a new life together, and, and Constance is pregnant with Mello's child, they're on the brink of going to British Columbia, um, so going to Canada. And I think for Lawrence, it would have been perhaps the New England that he he was dreaming of, a healed England. There was great space, great beauty around Vancouver, Victoria. And I, I, I like to know, I, I really enjoyed learning that Lawrence had been so inspired by that prospect that he gave it to Lady Chatterley and to Oliver Mallows as a future. Now, Alison, I'm going to ask you to nominate the three books of your life, but I also know that you are a great book lover, so I can imagine I've given you a bit of a task. <laughs> you really have, Red. It's, it's not easy at all, I have to say. Where would you like me to begin? Well, so was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes, there were a few. I'm going to give you my greatest inspiration as a child. And that, again, for your Canadian listeners, many will identify with this. It was Anne of Green Gables and the, the whole series of Anne books by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Those books were such an inspiration that I eventually got my childhood books over to England that, as I speak, on my bookshelf, looking out at me. And I, I, I was 10 years old when I first discovered it. And I'm try to look back at my childhood self and think, what was it that drew me? I think reading a book and really feeling connected to a book is, a, is an act of falling in love. And I think we fall in love when there's attraction, but also when we're moved by something or someone. And in this case, I did find it so moving, the, the story of this, this orphan girl who wasn't wanted. She was sent from Halifax, Nova Scotia, as an orphan, an ageing brother and sister who needed a boy to help on the farm. And as we all know, who turns up but this girl with red hair, talking away and full of life. So I think there's that element of being moved and it goes right through the novel with the kind of losses that she suffers. And so there's all of that. There's a very moving story from age of 10 to as she grows. But in the very first little novel, she is a girl with a great imagination. 
and she's got a sort of subversive energy to her as well. So she arrives for church for the first her first church service with a wreath of wildflowers on her head, and of course you would think, yes, she's celebrating the creation, but it's not appropriate in Edwardian society in Prince Edward Island, and, and you know at that time the book was written in 1908, I think, and. That sense of finding the world, I think she says, endlessly interesting, that there's so much in it, so much to love, and that her imagination fuels both her mischief and her radicality, her childhood radicality, but nevertheless, and makes her quite an original, brilliant mind. And I remember I actually forced my sister and um, one of our childhood friends when we were living at this time in uh, Montreal, and I required them to become my audience for, uh, I think I, I, I took it from Anne of Green Gables, a storybook club. And we were all supposed to tell each other stories, but I think they really didn't want to enter into it. And so, of course, it was me doing all the storytelling, but making them my captive audience. That's when I first realized the imagination was a big force in itself. And I confess, Ray, this is, is embarrassing, but I was only 10 or 11. I, I used to lie awake at night, so before falling asleep, imagining and pretending to myself that I was having a secret conversation each night with Lucy Maud Montgomery. And um, I'm not sure what I would have been talking to her about, but I remember thinking I, I've got some sort of hotline, her voice to my voice. And now I, I can see I was trying to find writerly contact to be in touch with somebody who could make worlds come alive. It seemed like magic to me to be able to take something from your own mind, written at a table in your front room, and send it across the world and across decades. And I think I first had that sense with her stories. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Yeah, I, I mean, maybe this is predictable of me, but I, I love it so. It's Jane Eyre. Again, she's an orphan again, and she's somebody with a huge emotional life, big feelings, big passions, a big mind. She's a sort of a big soul. What does she say to Rochester? I may be plain, obscure and poor, but I have as much heart and soul as you. And that sense of in this orphan who became a governess, who was always at the margin of society and never quite included within it, who developed, again, this sort of radicality of being and discovered within another person that, again, that tenderness of connection, that tenderness, that passion. It's, it's the ideal, isn't it, of true human connection, where you know another and you are truly known. And in that sense, no one is an orphan any longer in the world. The prose is wonderful, that visceral prose, both at the level of, of the land and again of body and soul, all of that integrated. For me, it's inspiring and it's a great comfort read. It sort of connects me back into the, the real pulse of life. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Oh uh, gosh, yes. Maybe I'm um, being unsurprising in this sense. I have now read Lady Chatterley's Lover countless times over in, in the writing of tenderness to really explore and uh, read between the lines and read all of its histories. And again, to, to be connected to that pulse 
in the prose. But there's surprises in there. There are problems in the novel, I'm not going to lie. There are things that, that don't sit well with any of us in the 21st century. And there are things that look dated as well. And yet, I, those are the limitations of Lawrence himself as a human being and as a writer. We all have our limitations and the time will always come when anyone in the future will look at all of our works and find them wanting. And that's certainly true when one looks back at Lady Chatterley's Lover. But I would say to your listeners that there's something big-spirited in that novel that is profoundly moving, profoundly liberating, profoundly life-affirming. And uh, it's not just a sort of silly novel about an illicit affair. It's not titillating. It's something, I think, much bigger than Lawrence himself. And it takes us to what keeps us green. I mean, green in a sense of springtime and new hope. Rebecca West said something to the effect that great literature allows us to think life is possible, that, that we can go forward with life. And that is certainly the case of Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's a great story, too. You can still feel the bomb that was lobbed. It's still there today. Well, Alison McLeod, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading with the listeners and for giving us some wonderful insights into your glittering new novel, Tenderness. Red, thank you so much and thank you to your listeners. It's a, it's a great treat and a privilege to be here. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Alison McLeod and to the show's producer, Sean Priest, He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author, Talking Books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.